I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. of the FNF podcast will bring you writing you won't hear about on CNN, works of literature chosen to shed some light on the subject at hand. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi. Joining me is my co-host, Whitney Terrell. Today we'll be discussing the recent revelations about Harvey Weinstein with the writers Gia Tolentino and Claire Vey Watkins. Whit, what are we reading today? Thanks, Sugi. Today, as we discuss sexual misconduct, gender, and power, we'll also be discussing how men like Harvey Weinstein implicate their victims in their acts by Gia Tolentino. Some stories from the 2017 story collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky, by Leslie Arima, and the 2007 story, Virgins, by Danielle Evans, and the 2015 essay, On Pandering, by Claire Vey Watkins. First, the nonfiction. Recent explosive articles in the New York Times and the New Yorker documented allegations of sexual harassment by Harvey Weinstein spanning nearly three decades. In a minute, we're going to talk to Gia Tolentino about her own New Yorker response to this subject. But first, we thought we'd briefly recap the who, what, where, why, and how of the Weinstein story. So here's the who. Famed Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein and a growing number of women, now more than 30, who have accused him of sexually harassing and in some cases, according to The New Yorker, raping them. Also in the who category, Roger Ailes, Bill Cosby, Bill O'Reilly, Donald Trump, Travis Kalanick, Mike Cagney, Chris Dugan, a whole pile of venture capitalists, and Amazon Studios executive Roy Price, all powerful men who've been accused of sexually assaulting, harassing women recently. Oh, save us from the pile of venture capitalists. Okay, the what? New York Times reporters talked to dozens of Mr. Weinstein's current and former employees who, quote, knew of his inappropriate conduct while they worked for him, end quote. Eight women interviewed by the Times described Mr. Weinstein, quote, appearing nearly or fully naked in front of them, requiring them to be present while he bathed or repeatedly asking for a massage or initiating one himself, end quote. 
Ronan Farrow, writing for The New Yorker, collected similar testimony, including three women who said that Weinstein had raped them. The where. Weinstein was known to frequent the Peninsula, Beverly Hills, the Savoy in London, the Hotel Cap Eden Rock near Cannes in France, and the Stein Erickson Lodge near the Sundance Film Festival. The why and the how. Why did he do it? Why did nobody say anything for so long? How were women navigating these situations? That's what we're going to talk about today. And for that, I'm so happy to welcome New Yorker staff writer Gia Tolentino, who responded to the news with an essay of her own. Welcome, Gia. We're so glad to have you on the show. Hi, Sugi. I'm so glad to be here. Um, Actually, you know, speaking of that hotel room thing, it's funny that you guys say that. I feel like this might have gotten lost in the news cycle a little bit. One really important thing to note about the fact that all these men were having hotel room meetings is that that is a completely normal part of the film industry. It's because you're so often at festivals and junkets and stuff like that. And these and producers will get a hotel room with a suite where it's understood that it'll be used for business meetings. Um, so it's not exactly the, you know, he she went up to his hotel room to meet him late at night, you know, it's like this completely normal, mundane part of being an actress. Well, that's why we're having you on, because we have no idea what it's like to be, <laughs> <laughs> to be a, an actor in Hollywood. Um, so we were wondering if, if maybe you'd read a little from your piece, how men like Harvey Weinstein implicate their victims in their acts. Sure, I'll read from the lead, um, which my male editor made the lead, which I think was, in retrospect, very smart. Um, If you've ever experienced sexual assault or harassment, you know that one of the cruelest things about these acts is the way they entangle and attempt to contaminate all the best things about you. If you're sweet and friendly, you'll think that it's your fault for accommodating the situation. If you're tough, well, you might as well decide that it's no big deal. If you're a gentle person, then he knew you were weak. If you're talented, he thought of you as an equal. If you're ambitious, you wanted it. If you're savvy, you knew it was coming. If you're affectionate, you seem like you were asking for it all along. If you make dirty jokes or have a good time at parties, then why get moralistic? If you're smart, then there's got to be some way to rationalize this. I felt that this essay so powerfully articulated my own often pretty delayed reactions about things that have happened to me. I exit a situation and then sort of a couple days later, I think, wait, that didn't seem like it was normal. And I just am sort of trapped in some ways or was trapped in some ways by my own naivete. And I was struck by how well the reporting around the situation has captured the long lasting effects of these encounters with Harvey Weinstein, the long life of the trauma, the way that some of the women describe changing their lives in response to what happened to them. Can you talk a little bit about how youth and age and time factor into the situation? Yeah, that's been one of the best and saddest things about all this reporting is because like I, like, I think that the cover-up, the long life of this trauma is a part of the story, right? The, the question of why has this stayed buried for so long and why is it coming up so violently for so many women who are in positions of power right now? And I think exactly what you're saying, you leave a situation, you don't realize till days, months, or years later that it was... It was exactly what it seems like, you know? And I think that's one of the cruelest things about sexual harassment and being treated like a sexual object in a professional context is that like I like that paragraph was saying the best things about you, your good faith, your desire to believe in honest interaction, they get really they get really used. And I think that is just as painful as well, I don't want to say just as painful, but that can be as painful as um, 
someone trying to use your body. You know, I, I, I cut a line from this piece saying I have a great personality, which a lot of men have made me hate, you know, I think it is telling and you can, with all these actresses, tertiary Hollywood people that are coming forward, Weinstein only approached them when they were below a certain age and below a certain um, point in the power hierarchy. And uh, as I wrote, Weinstein only approach I mean it's a typical thing in this dynamic where men only approach you if you are young enough and powerless enough to be implicated if you if you say yes and punished if you say no so there's no way out even if you avoid physical danger you've been affected and once you get past a certain point age-wise it stops happening so it becomes this thing that only happens to women who are vulnerable that's Which, one of the things that I yeah. noticed was how often the circumstances were exactly the same. Like these guys had an MO yeah. that was always repeated. It's terrifying in that way. Well, I think that that, I mean, it's it's not a sex thing, you know, it's a, it's, it is a sexualization of vulnerability, which is very easy. Our culture encourages everyone to do with young women. And so these men figure youth as the sexualized vulnerability and that's such an awful thing because there is so much else in our culture that does that too and so I, I, this is another thing that i wrote i mean once your youth has been configured as sexual vulnerability i think it imparts the message it can impart the message very powerfully that you have no choice but to be sexually vulnerable because you have no choice but to be young and that's like the it's the bind at the heart of this yeah, that line was really striking. And then I think um, it was one of the things that made me think about Leslie Arima's collection, what it means mm -hmm. when a man falls from the sky, which I know you and I both really loved. Oh, I love that book. It's so good. And then um, the stories are set in Nigeria and in the United States, and then also sometimes have fantastical elements. But for me, one of the things that, that really stands out about them is the way that she writes about women uh, women who often have a lot of strength, but whose worlds are dominated by complicated power dynamics. And they make a lot of calculations when they realize how little they can expect of the world. And those calculations are sort of the moment when they realize that they have to make those calculations are often a coming of age or a turning point in the stories. And they're really heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, I was thinking... Even that, so the, the first story in this collection, I mean, the, this absolute knockout of a story called The Future Looks Good, right? That's, yeah, that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, it's a woman approaching her door and how does it start? Let me find the first, the first line is, Azinma fumbles the keys against the lock and doesn't see what came behind her. And it uses that structure kind of periodically. It uses that line throughout the story and each what came behind her is sort of, a story of someone in her family coming up against, you know, this hard wall of circumstance and working around it, right? Making themselves whatever, making of themselves whatever they're going to make. Yeah. And the physical action of that, of her coming up to the door and not seeing what's behind her is obviously, I mean, it's operating in this sort of powerful metaphorical way. And then also actually the, the repetitive action of it. Right. Uh, it's this kind of creepy refrain. Yeah. One right. And things. it's the story of what it is to be, like alive in her family, you know? I mean, that's what struck me about the book among, among many things is how directly, I mean, this is the cool thing about fiction. It's why Sugi and I tried to create this pod, podcast is, you know, all of the situations that many of the situations she's writing about seem to apply so directly to this situation in Hollywood, even though she's writing in such distant, different places. I and mean, it's one of the really powerful things about fiction is how it translates across, mm -hmm. you know, geographical mm -hmm. barriers like that. But mm -hmm. also tells us something about 
male control. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same in Nigeria, perhaps, as it is in, in Hollywood. And she's, these, these characters are running into the same problems. Well, right. I mean, anytime, like anytime the, um, you know, economic and physical violence you know, perpetuated by a patriarchal power, power structure. I mean, you could, there's, there's no country in the world where that wouldn't be in play. There's no, there is no socially engaged fiction, I think, that, that could ignore that dynamic. You know, it, yeah. it's been, and, you know, the, it sort of feels, last week I was just saying to Suki before we started taping, felt sort of like this cognitive jail in which all of these, like, the story, the, the Weinstein story, I mean, it was O'Reilly, it was Ailes, it was, you know, it's going to keep coming up over and over and over again, because this is the story. This is what happens when when power is unquestioned. And it seems to evoke, evoked a very particular kind of storytelling among women I know. I mean, mm -hmm. so many people, you know, I graduated from college about 15 years ago, and that would put me sort of in the same time frame as many of the women who are coming forward about Weinstein or, or other people now that mm -hmm. we're sort of talking about youth. And so women are remembering things, you know, their stories are perhaps not in the news and they're engaged in this kind of private storytelling with each other, um, which has been, I think, for many people I know, um, a great relief and yeah. also a revisiting that they perhaps didn't expect. In some cases, re-traumatizing. Um, but it's interesting because yeah. it's the kind of private storytelling that isn't represented in almost, almost anywhere. Uh, yeah, it's also crushing, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely been, I, so after I wrote that Weinstein piece, I mean, one of the, one of the toughest things about, I mean, it's not tough to blog, you know, like, I don't want to say it's tough to, but one of the, I write about sexual assault a lot. And one of the things that I find the truly hardest about it is that if the piece is good, then I get seven dozen emails afterwards of women telling me those stories you know and and I and, and you know they're they're 20 to 75 and and it's awful you know I mean and I I'm so grateful to read them and I like respond very carefully but you know that's it's it's heavy you know and and writing about sexual assault through the because I, I worked at two women's media outlets before this having that happen every time I write about this you know, people who live all over the world, you know, who are in all different demographics and generations, and their stories sound exactly the same. And the fact that we all have just, you know, we, we're used to thinking about it like it was a train delay, you know, just, just something that sucked, but whatever, you know, and that to me has seemed like the renewed tragedy of last week. Well, we're, we're, we're taping on the day after that Me Too, uh, Oh yeah. Sort of mo movement started on Facebook. I mean, every single woman that it seems like that I have a relationship with is a colleague, is a friend, is a relative has posted. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I think you can I think everyone can assume that every woman they know has been ha harassed. You know, like assaulted, it's a pretty good bet. Harassed, it's a 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So we were thinking about particularly the story uh from a Remus collection, uh, Buki's Girls, mm -hmm. in which a single mother with not much money has to negotiate the needs of her two daughters. Um, she's kind of uh, living in a house that's not her own. And, you know, she has to make a choice based on what she thinks she can get for the, creating the best future for her uh, oldest daughter. 
Can you talk about how you read these sort of choices in, in Arima's book and how people are talking about calculations they made in relationship to Weinstein? Yeah, so one of the things that I love about that story is that the the narrator, she is very aware of the compromises she's making as she's making them. She's aware of the state of compromise she exists in financially. She's aware of how she has to act based on her economic vulnerability relative to the other people in the house. And in one case, her power over the male servant, she's she's exactly aware of where she falls in the power hierarchy and how she has to act. And she and so this difficult decision she makes at the end, can can we talk? I mean, we're not yeah. going to spoil it. No, well, so she, of course not. <laughs> she has to send her oldest daughter away to live with a friend. And she knows that the daughter will be kind of made to be a bit of a servant, you know, but she can't afford to take care of her daughter. And her daughter is causing problems within this house that she doesn't want to get kicked out of because she doesn't want her youngest daughter to have no place to live. And she knows exactly what she's doing. She um, the, I think the last line of the story is her asking, like, so, like you know, so what do you think of my friend? You know, the one that she's going to go live with, the daughter's going to go live, and she knows it's a, it's a rhetorical question because she knows what she's going to do. Yeah. And and I love how um, Arima's characters—they're not innocent, but they're still, they're still full moral people. Like the the total lack of innocence that this character has does not negate her absolutely earnest desire to be to do something better that she can't do you know she's fully aware of all the virtues that are inaccessible to her at that point and I think um that that has also been one thing that the Weinstein uh story and I think it's partly because you can just see the power structures very clearly because it's Hollywood and these things are kind of worked out in public uh, it reminds me of the like, let's take the issue of the of the female assistants, right? Because so one of the ways he would facilitate this is having, you know, he would invite the person that he was preying upon into the hotel suite. There'd be a meeting with a female assistant or executive there. They'd give the person a bottle of water and then they'd leave, right? So women were used as traps. They were put in this morally compromised position based on a based on an environment of economic scarcity. And um, I think it's easy to write off that position as like, how dare they, you know, these horrible enablers, it's, you know, women are a huge part of the problem, et cetera. Or like these women were so naive, they must have not known, which is also untrue. And I, and I, feel, I feel terrible for those women and how they must have been excruciatingly aware of what they were doing, you know, of how morally compromised they were. And I think that the Weinstein case illuminates the fact that, you know, like as in this Arima story, I mean, you make the choices that you have to. There are yeah. a lot of, yeah. I was just thinking when you said that about the other women who were involved, you know, because the narrator in this story is living in her sister Precious's house, right? And she has a difficult relationship with Precious, but the real problem is with Precious's husband, Dixon, who's the one who finally says, you know, this is my house. I own it. I'm going to kill this chicken that, you know, was oh, your, yeah. your little daughter's And he, and he daughter's hits her during pet. the story, right? Huh? I, think he hit, I think he hits her during the story. He does the slap her, and that's the moment yeah. she has to accept it. Right. Right. And that sort of right. moment, he's exercising a kind of power, which is also a power he has over Precious. Yeah. Right, which isn't explored as much in the story, but that's kind of what you're talking about. And Precious has to go along with this as well. Yeah. Um, it's like, it, it's, you know, I think... One of the things that maybe is easier to see in fiction in a way that is 
kind of it's it's easier to extend a, a fuller range maybe of reactions to the these choices in fiction than it is to like real women in real situations and news stories that are unfolding in real time but you know when you're when you are made when you're operating in an environment where you are working working and living at the pleasure of exploitative men then it's really hard to make a it's really hard to make a good choice you know it's interesting also to, to just like to think about um sort of bringing all this together when i read the story i'm also kind of wondering what would i say to you know little girls that i know what would i say if if i had a kid who was louisa or damaris's age in my care now and they were watching the news i mean this sort of came up earlier with trump you know kind of what would you say to your child and there are these moments of characters arima's characters making these choices that they that they have no other choice but to make. Uh, there are these moments of complicity. There are also these little girls who grow up and lose their innocence in these very particular ways. I think a question that I keep revisiting both in reading the news and in le- reading literature is, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I wonder what I would tell her, how I would prepare her differently. And I think about this pretty often, the ways in which certain harshnesses of the adult world or the real world or not that children don't experience the real world, but just how would I prepare myself for certain kinds of vulnerability or choices or decisions that I didn't expect to have to make? And I don't know what I would tell that version of myself or what I would tell little girls that I know. Yeah, you know, I think something that's really important about all of this is that it's kind of telling people, the women that are speaking up now are older and they're more, they're they're pretty secure in their careers as a rule. Not all of them. A lot of them ha- were forced out of the industry. There's also that, but you know, it's, they had a bit of demographic leeway to speak up. A lot of them are connected to Hollywood families. They're mostly white. Um, you wish that, you know, there's evidence of people at the Weinstein Company trying to blow the whistle starting a few years back. You obviously, I have this fantasy of someone just trying to burn all the, burn the house down in the 90s, you know, but they didn't. And you think about in Buki's Girls um, what it would have meant to to uh, Louisa, the oldest daughter, to see her mom stand up to this man who hit her or say, like, you cannot kill my pet chicken that you're doing just to hurt me. But, you know, if that had happened, because of the, you know, demographic circumstances and the financial circumstances that this character is living in, I mean, that really wasn't an option for her. You know, if if her mom stands up to her sister's husband, you know, she's going to get beat up and thrown out and things are going to get worse. And I think that it's important to think about in these situations, like when is there even any possibility of doing something different versus when is there effectively none, right? And that does tend to break down during, uh, break down in demographic lines. Did you all see that story uh, about Courtney Love had back in 2005? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, and, it's been an open, it's been a joke forever, right? right like but she paid a price rock. for that, she says, you know, like yeah, there was totally. an immediate cost, right? The one yeah. way that this is enforced is that the Weinstein himself or his company would make there be a cost for speaking out. Oh, yeah. wait, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> Hi, doggy. <laughs> She's barking at a squirrel in the backyard. Sorry, she'll, I think she'll stop. Luna, please stop. Um, Gia, you've been writing powerfully about gender and power dynamics and sexual assault for a while now, and you were talking a little bit about that earlier. When I think about your work on those topics, I was always I was really particularly blown away by your essay on David Bowie and Laurie Maddox, who lost her virginity to Bowie at 
when she was a teenager and whose memory of it does not jibe with sort of a, a critical discourse that wants to identify her as a rape as a rape victim. And that was really difficult gray area, I think, to cover. And you articulated some really important questions about our inability to use language to name what had happened. I've only been writing about sexual assault for about four years, but I have been conscious of different generations have vastly different language already to, you know, to talk about sexual assault. The generation that's in college right now speaks about um, different things as sexual, as sexual assault than, you know, somebody that's 60, someone that's 40, maybe even someone that's my age near 30 would. Um, so I've tried to write about it in a way that would communicate beyond, um, you know, beyond like people's specific vocabulary. Um, but, but about that Bowie piece, I've often found myself writing, trying to write from a feminist point of view that isn't exactly the farthest edge of the feminist line of argumentation, you know, like the, like, which is in the Bowie Maddox case saying she was a rape victim, even though she said she didn't consider herself that way because in today's morality, she would be, but, but to her then she didn't want to classify herself as that and to even admit that much of a wiggle in the situation can seem very dangerous and very um offensive to a lot of feminists in a way that I um just have to try that I'm writing honestly enough to you know that that it's going to be worth it you know I mean I, I brushed up against that this week I was writing about this um spreadsheet that's been that had been circulating last week about an anonymous open spreadsheet about men in media who were who were accused of various degrees of sexual misconduct or assault. Um, and I'd written about anonymous allegations about these allegations against a poet at Iowa last year. And that's another thing it's really hard to write about because, you know, the the idea that we need to believe women, which I believe we desperately need to believe women, intersects in an interesting way with anonymous accusations. And, you know, I mean, and so I find it, I find myself trying to argue for, for nuance in a way that I think is, I don't know if I always do it successfully, but I feel like it's an important thing to try to do. I mean, I actually was a, I was a sexual assault reporter in college, among other things that I, other things that I wrote about. And um, it's funny because it's affected my fiction in interesting ways that I did that. And I haven't done it since. Um, Mm -hmm. But I sort of have been reading your work with sort of the the lens of what a hard time I had as a college student writing about it and also looking back on it, the many ways in which I think I failed. Um, And so looking at Leslie's book and also looking at your work and thinking about different ways that we can portray portray these situations with nuance has been really valuable. Gia, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this and about writing about this. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Gia. Okay, our next guest is Claire V. Watkins, the author of the tw- 2012 story collection Battleborn, the 2015 novel Gold Fame Citrus, and the essay On Pandering, which also appeared in Tin House in 2015. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Claire, when and I thought of you in your essay on pandering, um, in part because it seems to so directly address many of the things that people are talking about in relation to Harvey Weinstein and what you call the white male literary establishment, um, where many of those same behaviors just seem to translate to this different realm. It also moves the story out of Hollywood and, you know, plush hotels in Cannes and 
sets it somewhere that we had probably many LitHub readers are more familiar with, you know, a small town college campus, an MFA program, and an important male writer, Stephen Elliott, at the time, the editor-in-chief of The Rumpus, who comes to town. Could you talk about what led you to write this essay and, and to lead with Elliott's visit? Sure, yeah. Um, I wrote it um, originally as a craft talk to be delivered at the Tin House Writers Workshop, and that's how it started as a piece of writing. Um, I didn't start with 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 Elliot, but the first part of the essay is all about kind of what I call the landscape of pandering, and it, it explores a small liberal arts college where I used to teach and its relationship to the surrounding areas and some of the class stuff going on there. Anyway, um, and then I, I moved to include the, uh, the incident with Stephen, mostly just because it kept, like, forcing itself into my head as I was writing the craft talk, you know? Like, I wrote it, I wrote this piece seven years after this little run-in with Stephen in Columbus when I was an MFA student. And um, I hadn't really thought it had been that formative to me, but for some reason I keep coming, kept coming back and coming back, and so I thought maybe I should just listen to what I was trying to say about it. So you also quote a post uh, in the daily Rumpus newsletter that Elliot sent out to his subscribers after he met you. I'm going to read just a shortened version of what he wrote. Uh, It was a really great time. It might have been the ride out from the airport with Kyle Miner, who's living the post-MFA life with a book of stories out, a couple of kids teaching classes up in Toledo. Or it might have been Claire, the student I stayed with. I tried to get in Claire's bed. It was a big, comfortable bed. She said no. How would she explain it to the boy she was getting to know? I said, there was nothing to explain to the boy. Nothing's going to happen. But she wasn't so sure. She'd been drinking, and I don't drink. This email in the brilliant way you annotated in the essay I feel important because you see the same bullying, belittling, linguistic techniques when Harvey Weinstein talks to her about women, and you call it professional sexism via artistic infantilization. I'm wondering if you could read some of your response to this email and talk about that? Sure, yeah. So this is from the essay. When I said, I'm a writer, Stephen heard, I'm a girl. And because I was a girl, when I said, no, you cannot sleep in my bed, he heard someone who, quote, wasn't so sure. I continued, in his mind, to be unsure. And only the man I was dating, in Stephen's infantilizing phrase, quote, the boy she was getting to know, could be sure for me. Because I was not a writer, not a person, I was easily made into a drunk girl, unable to tell her own story. So, you know, the encounter with, you know, this kind of, Stephen and I had sort of kind of a run-of-the-mill encounter that happens all the time, which is just sort of like somebody pressing a little bit hard for a sexual encounter. And then eventually he did take no for an answer, and he slept on the floor in my apartment. And then I thought really nothing more of it. It was yucky, but I just thought like it was over. And then later the next, that day, a friend sent me this daily rumpus email. And I remembered, you know, I thought very much of this encounter as like a professional opportunity for me. Stephen was the editor of what I thought was a really important magazine, and he'd been a Stegner fellow. And I really had this idea that we would talk about the Stegner fellowship. And um, that didn't happen because it wasn't really, that's not, you know, 
that's not the, the lens he saw me with. And I only really realized when I saw the encounter in his own words in the email, you know, which he had mentioned goes out to like thousands of people. So I was just so embarrassed to be depicted this way as this drunk girl. It just was really visceral at first. And then I started to think more about it. And it took me about seven years to th of thinking <laughs> to realize why it had had such a what I was most interested in was I, I wanted to know what it does to the artist's mind to have to navigate that type of landscape while at the same time trying to be good at art. Well, I mean, you were also already by that time accomplished enough that he shouldn't have been treating you any differently than Kyle Miner. I mean, I guess it depends, you know. On the one hand, it's sort of like, yeah, I, I, I like had some good publications and stuff, but it's also, you know, he thought of me as an MFA student, and I was an MFA student. So it's not exactly that, like, you know, that he refers to me as a student. Okay, but it was the just seeing him put to compare me and Kyle so closely. Like, Kyle's a writer, and I'm a girl. Like, I was like, I guess I, I the way I describe it in that essay was like a glass-bottom boat tour of a certain type of mind. <laughs> and it was, like, just so painfully obvious in that email I'm not even a writer to him. Like, of course we didn't talk about the Stegner Fellowship, you know? It just seemed, like, so, like, hopelessly and la laughable. And I just felt mostly extremely tired, which I know we're going to talk about Danielle Evans' story, Virgins, but that's the thing that she really nails in that story, I think, is, like, how the cumulative effect of this type of stuff is so exhausting, you know? So, oh, Sugi... Virgins is a story that you selected for the podcast, which is why I'm lucky to have you for a co-host, because it was an excellent choice. Do you want to set the plot up for us? I don't think I've actually ever taught Virgins, but it's one of my favorite of her stories, and it appears in um, Before You Suffocate her, Your Own Fool Self. And in the story, two girls go out clubbing in New York, they get separated, and the narrator ends up in bed with her friend's brother. And for me, the key to that story is something very similar to what you're talking about in your essay, uh, kind of the way that these women are shaping themselves to the men, male opinion, male presence, watching boys do stuff. It's the air that these two women are, are breathing. And they're also kind of performing. They're performing a kind of toughness. You know, we can take care of ourselves. I have was um, on Facebook earlier today and saw something that Danielle Evans herself actually posted about the story. The, the truth of the way that the story is about consent only revealed itself to her well after she had written it and that she had written the story and published it you know she was in her 20s and mm -hmm. she thought that that was that was important context for how the story had had come into the world mm -hmm. yeah i'll say i first read this when it came out in the parish review and i think i was in maybe my mid-20s and then um reading it Again, I thought I thought so much about the girls, the friendship, Jasmine and Erica. Much more, when I first read it, it was like, what's going to happen to their bodies? Are they going to be okay as they move through space, you know? And now I read it like, God, they're, they have to make these brutal decisions, you know? Like, no, it, it, it's like every woman for herself, and they are kind of, you know... They're, there's these gestures where they kind of cut down their own moms and they cut, will cut down or sort of like betray each other when they're pressed into a corner by the men, you know? So it like absolutely 
breaks the female relationship first, you know? And um, I saw that in some of the Weinstein stuff, like that idea of the, the honeypot, the women who are used to um, as to make the, the victim of Weinstein's harassment feel safe, right? Like the, how it, it like, it poisons female relationships. Yeah, you know, I saw that and I did think about all of those female relationships breaking apart. And then I also thought about the ways that women have protected other women, the ways that other women have protected me. And Sarah Polly had this terrific piece in the New York Times on Sunday. And the part of it that I found the most moving is this part where this anonymous publicist is required to take her to Harvey Weinstein's office. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to yeah. read this little snippet because um, yes. it just, oh sort, of, God, I know exactly. just sort of cracked oh, okay. me in a half. Um, you know, I, I was pulled out of the photo shoot abruptly. The publicist said that we needed to be in Harvey Weinstein's office in 20 minutes. Are we done here? I asked. No was the answer. But Harvey wants you there now. And she's previously described herself as, you know, 19 years old, lying in a little black dress, showing a lot of cleavage. Lying and she had been doing a photo shoot. Yeah, she had been doing a photo shoot. They stopped it. Yeah, sorry. Right, and, and it's a photo shoot that doesn't match who her character actually is in the movie, sort of this overly sexualized thing. Um, and then in the taxi, the publicist looked at me and said, I'm going in with you and I'm not leaving your side. I knew everything I needed to know in that moment and I was grateful. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know who that publicist is, but I kind of want to go find her you know um in the story the character jasmine is identified at school by who she slept with they talk about how they look to men when they make up stories for themselves because they're too young to actually kind of be in the adult club that they want to join they always have an imaginary man in their backstory and thinking about kind of what you were had written in on pandering i was kind of thinking about them as storytellers who were in some way pandering taking their own stories and shaping them around men Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe so, right, yeah. Like, I kind of thought of it also as a, a maybe a defense mechanism, you know, in the same way that a te- being, you know, close to their friend Michael protects them because people assume that they belong to him in a way, one, one or both of them. Um, it's almost like you want people to know that, or you want men to know that there are other men <laughs> looking after you. Yeah. Right, they they only go they only go to the pool at yeah. what is it, Mr. Thompson's house is that his name mm-hmm. with yeah. Michael right because they don't want to be there yeah. alone with Mr. Exactly. They're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. By the time they get to the club, I mean they've already fought. <laughs> they've been doing it for like you know they're they're fifteen, but they've already been then been doing that kind of calculation for so so long. So then by the time you know she's had to run out of an elevator and kind of free herself and leave her friend behind and you you get into bed with Michael's brother and it's like what does that what does choice even mean in this context for this girl yeah I mean that that that, that you mentioned that ending part when uh, when the narrators with you know, her best friend Michael his his older brother yeah. um, you know and she says she ends up having sex with him and she says you know I, di- I did understand then that there was no such thing as safe only safer and that this if i didn't if it didn't happen now it would happen later but not better and that makes mm-hmm. me think you know uh, back back to harvey weinstein and in hollywood in general one thing i keep seeing repeated in these interviews are women stuck in a room with harvey weinstein thinking how quickly can i get out of here without offending harvey but also without getting assaulted people seem to be asking since they seem to know that weinstein was a monster or could be what are they doing going in 
Well, I mean, it's insane. I think that's an insane opinion. You know, everybody has the right to go to a professional meeting, expect that they won't be sexually assaulted. Agreed. Yeah. You know, so what I'm asking is, are these women, and I'm interested in Claire's take on this, you know, are these women operating under the same logic that Evan's story describes? You know, there's no such thing as safe, only safer. That taking a meeting with Weinstein, while horrible, might be Hollywood's version of safer. Yeah, it seems the more I listen to the women's stories in their own words and hear their account, what comes up again and again is the um, feeling like this is going to happen whether I like it or not. You know, there was a really powerful interview with Catherine Kendall, one of Weinstein's victims who was 23 when, when this happened, and she talked about him blocking the door and her knowing simultaneously like i could he could it's up to him whether i get out of here alive but also she would say yeah, it's up to me like i will get past you but having to do a negotiation for your life at the same time that you're saying i sure hope mr weinstein is not um his feelings aren't hurt it goes back to that margaret atwood quote about men are afraid women will laugh at them and women are afraid men will kill them i can think of specific points in my life when clearly on some level i was trying to get out of something that Mm -hmm. i didn't think was safe and didn't realize sort of the long-term consequences of what i had opted out of until much later i mean you wonder what will these women be like when they grow up these characters and virgins well i mean they could be anything right like it's not I mean, we, one of the things that this Me Too phenomenon was trying to do, I think, was to show how unextraordinary this experience is. Like, they could be anyone, because <laughs> it's happened to everyone. I don't know. The emotional toll of reading about these allegations has not been, certainly hasn't been nothing. And there are have been a few moments that have kind of given me this sort of hope. And one of them was that in, that interview with Catherine Kendall, was with Michael Bobara of The Daily on the New York Times' podcast, morning podcast deal. Mm-hmm. She said, um, I already feel like I'm silently holding hands with the other women that have been through this, and there's a great power in that. And I just like completely broke down feeling a little bit of that too, you know? And maybe, maybe there is uh, some turn happening now. In, in your essay, Claire, you say, I've built a working miniature replica of the patriarchy in my mind. I would like very much to bust it up or burn it down. So I was wondering for both of you, you know, how does a broad and public scandal like the Weinstein case affect your work? Does it start busting up that miniature replica of the patriarchy, or is it just a reiteration, a wearying reiteration of the issues that you've already been addressing? I th- I think what it's looked like for me personally is like to hear those stories and and the the volume of them coming out um, is a a very powerful sense of um, just reminding myself that when I sit down and work on my novel that my, my experience and my thoughts and my ideas are worthwhile, which is what you have to say if you're gonna sit down and write I think you have to say it's just to say like I do have something to say and hearing other women 
come forth and telling these stories in much, much scarier circumstances than I've ever faced. It's quite powerful. I think that it also seems like it's the Me Too movement seems like it's also in a powerful way. Like it's a kind of, I mean, ostensibly it's, it's so that men see the volume, but in some ways I, I wonder if it isn't also for us to see the volume because for women and non-binary folks and men who suffered abuse, right? Because all of those moments, not all of those moments, but I think many of those moments probably, right? Like one of the things that they do is they isolate people. Um, mm-hmm. They, and so here you're getting sort of a chorus. It's almost like a collective ungaslighting. Um, yeah. We, we yeah. believe ourselves so often when we have a story like that and we don't tell it, um, it's sort of, you I don't know, you wobble back and forth on it in your mind. Did that actually happen the way I thought it did? And one way you kind of check it sometimes is by telling it to someone else. And they say, oh, no, that actually is, that's bananas. What happened to you? And you're like, wait, that that was bananas. And then you, you sort of, you sort of weep for yourself. You weep for your past self a little bit. And you think, I didn't know that that was so awful. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I think that that's a form of storytelling that will hopefully in some way affect all of our reading and writing of each other's stories in a in a better way yeah i like that claire thanks for coming on the fiction Nonfiction podcast it was a real pleasure to talk to you thank you so much claire i hope that we can have you back on the podcast sometime to talk more and it's always always good to catch up with you yeah thanks thanks to you both for the conversation and now i'm joined by jan weissmiller who's the co-owner of one of my favorite bookstores, and I know Sugi's favorite bookstores, Prairie Lights in Iowa City, Iowa, who's going to give us three more book recommendations uh, for the subject we've been discussing today. Okay. Um, well, so, hi. I'm, uh, I'm, I've got three books here that I think are useful in thinking about this kind of overwhelming revelation on, of, about Harvey Weinstein. And, and one is uh, brand new, came out last week, called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, and it's 27 psychiatrists and, health, and mental health experts assessing him, m- mainly seeing him as a narcissist and a bully. And But as they sort of profile that kind of behavior, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think of it in terms of powerful men and um, and it's also a year since the Access Hollywood tapes came out and they seem to have had no impact on the election and they, they had no impact on the election and, and so I think in memory of that this is a good book to read right now and uh, and then I remembered reading a book in 1999 when it came out and it was it's a it's a book by a, an essayist and poet named Nancy Venerable Rain R A I N E and it's called After Silence Rape and My Journey Back. She had this kind of shocking experience when she was in her late 20s she opened the door to her apartment one night to put her garbage out and a man came in with a gun and spent 2 days with her in her apartment abusing her and telling her not to speak about it and afterwards she went to her parents to recover, as I recall, for a couple of months, but her parents basically also told her not to speak about it. She'd be better off to forget it, to recover and not talk about it. And all of her friends basically had that same response. And, and, then, and then she, one day, just decided she was going to write about it. And it's a very, very affecting and moving book. And then sort of on, on a lighter note, there's a, there's a, a, a novel out this 
ball called Young Jane Young that's based on Monica Lewinsky, and it's not, um, it, it's somewhat lighthearted, but it's it's the story of, uh, it's imagining, it's not Monica, it's a fictional character that had that same kind of experience with a, with a politician, a famous politician, and she's, uh, she's made another life for herself, and she's in Maine, and she's got a teenage daughter and she's very successful and she is talked into running for school board or city council or something and because she's gets into the public sphere again all this all this life that she tried to bury comes out and it made me remember how we all sort of thought Bill Clinton was the victim in 1999 so that's what I have to say <laughs> thanks Jan uh, it was great seeing you during the Iowa City Book Festival I hope to see you again soon <laughs> It was great to see you, too, as always. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast this week. Thanks to composer Travis Workman for our theme music. Wit and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. To get that, subscribe to us in iTunes or through the Literary Hub website. Please visit our Facebook page at FNF Pod or our Twitter feed at FNF Talk. And happy reading.